babies born prematurely are adversely affected often throughout their lives and Wellington Hospital neonatal intensive care specialist Dr Max Berry says while we know some of the needs of such babies more needs to be done one in 12 babies in New Zealand are born preterm that's about 5,000 a year and Dr Berry has dedicated her research and career to safeguarding their development especially their brain development she's also Associate Professor at the University of Otago's Department of Paediatrics and Child Health in Wellington. And I asked her, what is regarded as the minimum gestation for viability in New Zealand? There is the opportunity for babies born at 23 plus zero weeks gestation to get care through tertiary services through a neonatal intensive care unit. We're really fortunate in New Zealand. We've got six uh, neonatal intensive care centres, um, specialist centres around the place, which can offer that level of acuity of care. So uh, Middlemore, Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington, of course, Christchurch, um, and then down in Dunedin. For that to happen, though, there's clearly a whole bunch of stuff that's got to happen around midwifery, obstetrics, getting mums to a tertiary um, place of care. Your specialty is brain development. And um, it's one of the areas that yeah, I'm really interested in, and it's all about how we um, understand and support optimal brain development for these most vulnerable babies that are coming into our care. And how do you? By being very, very careful, very meticulous, and doing our level best to actually understand for each and every child that we have in front of us, where have they come from, where are they now, what does the next minute, hour, day, week, month look like? And then even beyond that, Kim, I think it is so important that we understand that for a preterm baby, their journey doesn't stop when they graduate from the neonatal unit. You know, that's a really important phase one, but this, this is a whole of life trajectory. You know, you need to make sure that well-being for these kids is protected and enhanced um, as they, you know, go through the normal childhood, you know, milestones, go to school, go on and, um, you know, live the rest of their lives. And in order to do that, we need to have a really comprehensive approach to well-being in its most you know, holistic sense. You've been investigating the, uh, the hormone progesterone, which is converted by the fetus into a neurosteroid. Mm -hmm. What work have you been doing on that? Because there's a drug that can replicate that, correct? So this is, the what you're talking about is all in that preclinical space. So this is um, really sort of um, conceptual um, work, looking to see whether or not we can understand more about what a normal fetus would experience mm. and therefore what are ways in which we could provide new therapies, new strategies to a preterm baby to get it back closer to um, the environment that a fetus would experience so that we can optimise that brain development. The, the projects that you're talking about there, I say these are very much in the preclinical experimental stage where we're just doing all that working out, trying to figure out what different strategies might we be able to bring to the newborn unit in order to promote um, the, the well-being of those extremely preterm infants. And so what have you been working on? So you're right, you know, the, the Ganaxalone project is something we've been looking at. Um, there's a number of other... Ganaxalone is, is, is a drug that... that can replicate the progesterone conversion, is it? In some ways. So this is, this is this a very... This is the test that you've been doing on guinea pigs, literally, isn't it? That's right. Um, mm. 
one of the things that we are really um, mindful of is that a preterm baby has got an incredibly vulnerable um, brain. We need to understand mechanistically down at sort of a cellular molecular level what are the things that are going to protect it, what are the things that we can do to enhance um, recovery and well-being. And if we go back to some of the original work that was done in New Zealand you know, many years ago with Liggins and Howie looking at antenatal corticosteroids, they used um, a pregnant sheep and um, the lamb model to understand how antenatal corticosteroids would improve lung and brain and gut maturation. And that approach has, was, a, was a global game changer for every pregnant woman at risk of preterm delivery. Um, and has, you know, there's no question that that research transformed the outlook for preterm babies, not just in New Zealand, but anywhere in the world. So and that was giving, standard of care. giving the mother corticosteroids. That's right. And that helped save preterm babies um, in terms specifically of the respiratory distress syndrome. But not just save them. Um, the quality of life that these kids were able to then enjoy was significantly better because they were healthier and you know in a much much um, better state from the moment mm. of birth. And then let's say that whole you know all of rest of life trajectory was enhanced because of that preclinical research, understanding the complexities faced by that newborn baby, and coming up with some really innovative treatment, which then has led to these you know tremendous gains for preterm babies. So it was, there was also the that there was also that work done by um, Professor Jane Harding, Dame Jane Harding, on nutrition, ameliorating low sugar levels, mm -hmm. which also affected brain development. So all these things are slowly, brick by brick, improving the outlook for premature babies. Absolutely. Um, one of my colleagues recently uh, did some work as well, looking at even blood transfusions that we give in the newborn unit. Because, um, you know, we're saying, well, okay, is every blood transfusion the same? Or are there nuances and differences in the way that those red blood cells can improve the amount of oxygen that's carried around in the baby's body? And so she set out to, to look at that in a lot of detail. We found that, sure enough, there are some really subtle things that they can do in the lab. So when we then give a red, red blood cell transfusion to a preterm baby, that actually that improves the oxygenation of the baby's brain, which we um, hope um, and believe will have significant um, gains for that, that child in terms of their ultimate recovery. One of the things that afflicts babies born prematurely is cerebral palsy, um, a movement disorder. Presumably that is directly connected with brain development? Absolutely. Um, so we know, again, the more preterm you are, the more likely you are to go on to have um, a range of issues as you grow up. Cerebral palsy is one of those um, conditions. And as you say, it's um, a condition which impacts the child's ability to move uh, as freely um, as they otherwise would be able to do. Do like, you know how to stop that? If I did, I would be extraordinarily happy, as would so many families throughout mm. the globe. What we do know um, a little bit about are things that increase the risk. So, you know, it's, it's about trying to make sure the mum has got... Um, um, the best possible antenatal care. If mum is in a good state and she's had her antenatal corticosteroids, the the risk to the baby is reduced. And you would give her corticosteroids if she if she showed indications that she might give birth prematurely. That's right. Yeah. Right. And what would the science for that be? When the midwife or the obstetrician comes to me and says we have a lady that we believe to be in preterm labour. But why would she? Why would she go into prem labour? Yes. 
again, if we knew the answer to that, we could do something that would stop preterm labour. I mean, a multitude of causes, presumably, possible causes. For the vast majority of women, we don't actually know what the catalyst was for her to go into preterm labour. So this is very much an active area of research that people are, are looking at. Because clearly if we could stop women going into preterm labour, um, then we wouldn't have these preterm babies um, for whom we were trying to provide um, all this additional care. Let's focus on cerebral palsy. Is there um, a gestation period at which a baby is born that gives it such and such a risk for cerebral palsy, or is it an entirely individualised risk? So cerebral palsy is um, part of a sort of a much bigger constellation of issues that these children might face with other elements of developmental delay, so learning difficulties, behavioural or emotional um, challenges, as well as the, the motor difficulties of cerebral palsy. There is no magic threshold at which you can say, OK, if you're born at 28 weeks or 32 weeks, that risk has essentially gone away. It's, it's right. not, as unfortunately, as simple as that. So the things that we do to reduce that risk, and say it's about maternal side, you know, making sure she's got the steroids on board, that she mm. is well. It's about optimising the ventilation of the baby, making sure that they're breathing um, well when they're born. And if they can't breathe by themselves, supporting that in a way that is as um, effective as possible. It's about making sure that their blood pressure is in the right place, that their blood sugar is in the right place, their nutrition is optimised. There's yeah, lots and lots of these tiny building blocks when you consider that this preterm baby is completely dependent on the, the medical and the nursing framework around them to meet all of their, um, their health and well-being needs. And by paying attention to each and every single one of those little you know, building blocks, that's the way that we believe we can optimise brain development, reduce the risk of cerebral palsy, um, and improve the quality of life uh, for children born early. You mentioned, you know, learning difficulties, ADHD, um, but the big study that you did in 2018 of 760,000 births between 98 and 2015, you found that most extremely premature babies did not need special school support. They were able to sit their national high school exams. That came as a surprise to me. I thought that that would not be the case. It was exciting data. Um, so I think one of the, the beauties of that particular study is that um, so I was able to work with the, the team over in um, public health department and actually look across at a whole of New Zealand um, what is actually happening you know, on, a, on a national level um, with our children. Um, and actually really start to pull together not just what happens in the newborn period or in the immediate post-discharge period, but track that whole-of-life trajectory. Because you're right, there's a lot of dogma, there's a lot of um, sort of anxiety out there that if you're born early, this is, this is always a disaster. Um, and far from it. You know, yes, there are challenges, and yes, particularly that early phase of life is incredibly challenging and stressful. But there are many, many, many children who sort of managed to get through that early life adversity and go on and thrive and just become these, you know, joyful, happy, well kids out there going to school, driving their kids, you know, their parents, you know, nuts with the normal adolescent um, stuff um, and going on to, you know, just to, to live. Um, and I think it is, it is easy for us to become fixated on the problems and to be fixated on that deficit model. And, and yet our attention is drawn to the deficit model because we're told that even moderate preterm birth is linked to evidence of ADHD and the need for learning support and dyslexia and dyspraxia. 
and yet I'm looking at the results. And this doesn't appear to be the case. Can you solve that uh, disparity? Don't forget that that cohort that we reported in that um, paper represent a very different epoch of neonatal care. And it's possible that not all the babies then that were born then survived in the way that the children would survive nowadays. The elephant in the room here, of course, is this question. Are we keeping some very premature babies alive at the cost of their quality of life? That's always something that, as a neonatologist, as neonatal nurses, as parents, you know, family, whanau, that we talk about um, and we worry about. And I think the way that we address that is the way that we approach it on our you know, neonatal intensive care unit with transparency and honesty. We talk to families before babies are born. These are the things that I see that are encouraging. These are the things that I'm worried about. And that conversation is iterative. We go, you know, we have that conversation over and over, multiple times a day sometimes, about where are we in um, this child's um, journey? And how do we make sure that what we're doing we're doing for the right reasons in the right way. Um, so I don't think it's an elephant in the room that people are ignoring. Um, when you are in that space, it is a very... Um, it can be a very difficult discussion, but it is a discussion that needs to be had. It needs to be had, say, with honesty and transparency so that um, we support not just the child but the people that, you know, the love and care for that child around them so that, you know, as they go forward, they can make decisions around supporting their, their child's well-being in the best way possible. Would you describe it as a, as a dilemma that is the same at the end of life as at the beginning of a premature baby's life? When, when to know, when to let go? Um, absolutely. And I think one of the, the conversations that we sometimes have with families is around, you know, clearly the thing that you love most in the whole entire world is this baby in front of you. And sometimes, you know, loving them and loving them that much is about also recognising when it is time to, to let go. Um, and knowing that, you know, medicine does have limitations. As much as we want to do everything we possibly can, there are some things that we can't treat, we can't fix, we can't undo. But what we can do is act with love and compassion, you know, in this setting every day, um, every time we come to work. That is what we're there to do. Is there pressure on to enable younger and younger babies to potentially survive? You know, we're looking at 23 weeks now. Is it conceivable that that might be pulled back to 22 and a half, 22 weeks? Or or are you really at the limit now at 23 weeks? I think at the, where we are now is really at the limit of what we can do with conventional medicine. Um, mm. Babies born before that their lungs are so delicate, they're so immature, that actually the function of a lung is to get oxygen into your body, to get rid of the carbon dioxide, the waste gases. If your lungs are so delicate, because clearly a fetus, the lung doesn't have to do that work, um, then we're actually we're up against biology, up against physiology. There is, there is a limit to, to how far we can push these children. We are aware of our limitations, and we cannot and will not make false promises to parents um, about what we, you know, we, we can't say to somebody at 20 weeks, oh, look, hey, we can help. Yeah. We can't. It is a horrendous discussion to have. It is heartbreaking for all concerned. But we can't make something better by, say, you know, false promises. Um, our state of what we can do is limited 
to around the 23-week threshold, and there is really good biological reasons for that. We don't know where the future is going to take us. We don't know where science and medical innovation is going to take us. What we can do is say, this is currently um, where, we, where we are. This is what we can do. Um, and just make sure that every kid that comes into our care has the best possible care that we know how to give. I'm talking to neonatal intensive care specialist, Dr Max Berry. So parents, mothers, must they reach, you know, 22 and a half weeks and it's like an hour-by-hour struggle to get to that magic 23-week threshold because most babies, I'm assuming, follow a fairly typical development pattern. There's no way that a baby would be better developed at 22 and a half weeks than another baby would be at 23 and a half weeks. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean because this is exactly the dilemma we are faced with um, when you've got a a woman presenting at uh, 22 plus 5 or 6 weeks gestation but isn't Mm -hmm. quite at 23 plus 0. And you say to the parents, presumably, look, uh, this baby was born at 23, 23 and a half, 24 weeks. These are the extra burdens that you may have to carry. Is that the conversation also? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, our unit philosophy is one where that transparency and that honesty Mm. Um, is is integral to everything that we do. So things that we are concerned about as well as the things we want to celebrate and the triumphs um, that we see in the babies as they come through, Mm. um, those are shared. And, you know, and again, we're talking about the deficits here, but, you know, we try really hard to actually look and see, hey, we've got through this, or babies responded really well to such and such, or hang on, like we're now, you know, five days old, blood pressure stabilised, ventilation's great. Let's get out for a cuddle. Let's get that baby skin to skin with mum and start doing some normal mum-baby stuff. Sure, you're in intensive care and sure there's drips and there's wires and there's all these machines that are terrifying and overwhelming, but actually we can make this safe and we can enable you to parent your baby. We can enable you to do those normal things that any mum is just, or dad for that matter, uh, is just desperate to do, that touch, that hold, that just time that is focused on the parent you know, newborn interaction and just let that sort of machinery of medical intervention just melt away into the background just for a moment so that we can celebrate, hey, I'm a parent, this is my baby. Um, and, you know, there's there's a huge amount of stuff in that space as well that we are very actively working on so that that normal interaction that we know is also good for babies, it's good for mums, even our incredibly preterm babies, there is a lot of medical as well as sort of psychological advantage to just doing normal stuff, skin to skin, hold your child, you know, feel that connection between, you know, you as the parent and your baby, doing things that, you know, the doctors and the nurses, we come in and we have a task approach. A parent comes in and they just say, my baby's beautiful. And how do I touch them? How do I hold them? How do I love them? So our job is even when you've got a 500 gram, you know, tiny vulnerable prem baby, is to be thinking, yep, I'm going to fix the blood pressure, I'm going to look at the oxygen levels. But also, when is the first moment I can get them out of their incubator and up on mum's chest to be cuddled? When is the first moment I can get you know, dad's hand in there so they can put his hand on, hold, touch, be with and be present with their child? Those are the things that sit alongside the medical interventions that we do every day. And we're incredibly fortunate we've got you know, an amazing 
group of nurses um, and allied health professionals that are just so intensely focused on helping us enable those normal interactions. And again, we know that that's really important for brain development. Um, well, so I was going to ask, I mean, we know a lot about bonding and it's, you know, it's very nice. But scientifically, what does it do? What does the skin on skin do for a baby? It's more than nice. They need it. Um, so there are some times where we cannot facilitate it. The baby is too medically unstable and it would be um, you know, unwise to get them out of the incubator. But we can get also their skin is often so thin, right? Ah, it's very delicate. Um, but again, we have a lot of expertise in how to look after that. So every baby um, is taken on their own merits. You know, what does the skin look like? You know, what is their medical state, medical stability like? Mm. And then how do we enable those more ordinary interactions to happen? And scientifically, it's not just a, a nice to have. It's it's an imperative, you know. These kids, and I don't understand it, you know, fully. Um, one day maybe I will, but um, we just watch their their heart rate settle, their blood pressure settle. We watch uh. those kids just settle into that contact with their, you know, their parents, and the 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 impact of touch from a parent on a newborn uh, preterm baby is different um, to the impact of touch from a healthcare professional. Is it? Seems to be. Uh. Um, that is a mysterious thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. Um, and, you know, I think one of the great joys in neonatal medicine is, sure, we get um, some amazing science. There's all this amazing research that we do. We, you know, we've got the, the scientific complexity of this problem of a very vulnerable baby. But there is also the humanity that sits alongside of that and the privileged position that we find ourselves in where we are looking after these incredibly vulnerable patients. We've got the privilege of watching, you know, mums and dads learning how to parent this incredibly precarious little person um, and helping to enable them on that journey. Mm. It's, um, you know, and the courage of our parents, they're coming in day after day to what is a, an overwhelming um, environment. You know, the emotional charge that sits in the neonatal unit, you know, the busyness, the, you know, there's all this um, intensity around medicine but then coming back, let's say, to that humanity of here's a little person who just needs their mum and dad, you know, and here are a set of parents that just need their baby. How do we combine all of these things? And within neonatal medicine, we've got the opportunity to do that um, and make a difference. I think it's that making a difference and seeing year by year outcomes getting better and better and knowing that, sure, at this point in time when the baby is born, it can appear just overwhelming. But little by little by little, for the majority of these children, they'll get closer and closer to the door, they're going to exit, they're going to get out there and, and go on and, and live their lives. And sure, they might need some additional support out in the community. But that's okay, you know, who knows what future any of us had, right? So we just take as we find, support as we can, um, and do everything um, in our power to enable parents to parent the children to the best of their ability. I'm sure they're glad to have you around because the whole idea of having a baby is thrown upside down if you have a premature baby and has to go into a neonatal unit in, in an incubator and lots of tubes and wires and you can't touch it and lift it and breastfeed and all the rest of it. That is a massive readjustment, a massive readjustment to people's dreams. Yes, it is. Um, and again, you know, I think the vast majority of us, you know, the work in this space are parents ourselves and, you know, you 
can see every moment of every day the how far removed the neonatal in- intensive care environment is from the newborn period that parents were expecting and wanting and you know say hopes and dreams so it's it's about there's almost like a grief period that a lot of parents go through where the reality that they have is different from the reality they dreamed of so helping and supporting them through that adjustment um, is also a, a key component of what we do um, because it is a new reality and it is a very different space that they find themselves in. So if you have a, a baby in the neonatal unit, very premature, what's the first milestone that you can say to the parents, look, this is, this is great? Honestly, Kim, it just depends on the gestation of the baby and the the things that they've come into the unit with. Mm. But we will always find something. And, you know, there will be a sense of, oh, we've done this. And so that milestone is going to vary baby to baby. And, so that you and have go, something that's achievable. And, you know, is it often maybe one step forward and two steps back sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. Um, and parents are, we talk to them about that. You know, this isn't a linear pathway. You're going to have some triumphs and you're going to have some really positive steps forward, which are fantastic. But then maybe things will just pause or possibly take, as you say, um, a slight backward step. So we need to test and adjust. Okay, this is where we find ourselves now. Okay, so what's the next bit of forward progress look like? And how do we measure success there? This is a very obviously rewarding, but also difficult area of medicine that you are involved in. How did that happen? for me um, as a junior doctor or as a medical student when I saw you know neonatal medicine as a discipline I was like wow that's that's incredible um, and I think for me personally that that sort of uh, feeling of actually how do we make a difference how do we add value um, was cemented when I was um, just on a placement and uh, the family of a kid that had been looked after like 15 years earlier just came in for a visit um, and they had some photographs of you know the lad when he was a tiny wee dot you know, and I'm looking at this great big strapping, you know, fifteen year old, you know, rugby playing lad thinking, Oh my god, how do you reconcile this tiny wee dot with this great big sort of you know, adolescent lad that stood there? Um and, you know, the parents were just they just wanted to come to the unit and say thank you and that you know, to, to let the team know that despite those early challenges, they had this beautiful, great big teenage boy that whom they were just inordinately proud. I was like, Yeah, I, I wanna I want to, you know, be part of that, be able to make that sort of difference for families. Um, And I've been very fortunate in my career that I've been able to do that. 